1: Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to another social distancing episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode is a live online event that we staged recently with the title Coronavirus, Your Questions Answered. And we gave our audience the opportunity to ask their questions to a leading panel of experts, including science broadcaster Zand Van Taleken, epidemiologist David Heyman, economist Linda Yu, and disease control expert Bharat Pankania. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please stay tuned because we're about to announce an entire series of these online events. And of course, as always, if you like the episode, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, Farah, and thank you, Intelligence Squared. Well, it is lovely to be back. I think it is possibly even more useful and valuable for us to be having this event with all the events of the last week behind us now. I think even as many as 10 days ago, we were a nation to a certain extent divided, people saying we were overreacting and other people saying we were underreacting. I think now everyone, almost everyone agrees on the seriousness of the crisis, and we have two fears running alongside one another, illness and the spectre of a health service that may be overwhelmed and the spectre of unemployment and the failure of the economy. And I think our panel today are extraordinarily well positioned to answer questions about that and I hope provide some much needed reassurance. As in all disasters, we, the affected population, will do the heavy lifting even more, even more than healthcare workers in hospitals. And so there is a huge amount at stake for all of us. We are not just listening to the policy. We are the policy in our behaviors. Has the government been following the right scientific advice on the pandemic? Why, despite the World Health Organization's pleas to all countries to test, 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 have we not been doing very much testing? Should the state be rationing food supplies to make sure there is enough for all? How much prosperity should we be asked to make, uh, to lose in order to save thousands of lives? What is the cost of saving a life in this pandemic? And I think it is important to say beyond all of our Analysts, illustrious qualifications and accolades and awards and so on, um, all of them have um, experience and I think a flavor for this scale of global disaster, which is immensely valuable um, when we're dealing with things that are this unknown. David, can I start with you? Can you just give us a picture of what your life has looked like over the last few weeks? What have you been working on? What are the things that have mattered to you? What have you been learning?
2: Thanks, Dan. And, you know, I'm in a very privileged position because I chair a group at the World Health Organization that actually does the risk assessment of what's going on today. And I think one of the most interesting and most important things to know in the world today is that despite the geopolitical tensions between countries, technical experts from around the world are working together to understand this disease. And the understanding has been quite rapid during the past few months, a few weeks, actually. But there are still a couple issues that remain to be completely understood, and that is how transmissible is this disease between persons? How easily does it go from one person to another? And also we need to better understand the full clinical spectrum of disease from the time of infection to the time of hospitalization or death. So we need to know how many people are really asymptomatic and how many people do in fact have mild disease and then how many have severe disease. So we're learning a lot, building a ship as it sails. And I think that the technical cooperation in the world that's been sharing so much information really is an example of how we can work well together in the 21st
1: century. Brilliant, David. Thanks very much for that, that quick sum up. And we're going to come back to all those questions later. Barat, can you talk us through how your world has looked for the last few weeks, what you've been working on and what's, what's really stood out to you? Um leading on what from what
3: Professor David Heyman has just shared with us, my world has also been in a similar direction, and we got busy the moment we heard about a problem in Wuhan. Hubei province in China, people like myself who deal with communicable diseases like these and emerging novel viruses are always in tune, looking out for such developments. And as soon as we knew about it, we were all into action stations. So locally at my University of Exeter, uh, we activated our pandemic preparedness plans. And in addition to that, we have been really busy giving reassuring scientific measured advice to our listeners. I have been on media across the board from my local, national, and international places, just passing on factual, really important factual, uh, scientifically proven evidence rather than, um, and also bunking myths, because there are just equal number of uh, false media, fake news, as you would put it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've been very busy since January. And, we, and what I have found is that the media can be our friend. And through the media, I think I have spoken to so many thousands of people across the globe, uh, giving them measured scientific evidence.
1: Brilliant, Barrett. thank you very much. They've been bunking the myths and you've been debunking them, and I'm sure that some of those um, <laughs> questions will will be able to do, do more of that. Linda, can I turn to you quickly? I, I think all the medics have, everyone I know in the infectious disease and public health world has said, for my entire career that at some point we will face a pandemic like this, even if they haven't known when. And I don't know if the economists have maybe had to scramble even more than the the, the public health community to respond to this. How is the crisis uh, affecting economists?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think there have certainly been, um, you know, economists on the lookout for what the next sort of big crisis pandemic can be. So I think there is some preparatory work, but I think what makes this crisis very different is that the global nature of it, and obviously the, um, you know, the medics will, will be able to make a better parallel. But for economists, it's very unusual to have a sudden stop in the economy. In other words, people just have they can't go to work, they can't do their normal things. They're working from home firms have to be closed down for medical reasons. So all of these things mean the economy is in a really fragile state. So over the past few weeks, certainly um, economists that I know have been looking at writing, uh, advising on the ways in which government can respond to make sure that this sudden stop, this impact, doesn't have a longer-term impact on the economy. So supporting people, supporting viable businesses, making sure, firstly, that the health system has the resources it needs. All of these things are really key. And so, for instance, um, last week, um, I know everything feels like it's been going on for a very long time, but it was actually only last Monday when uh, we had the first assessment of what the Chancellor had put out in the budget to help address COVID-19, because the previous week was the budget on the Wednesday. So on the Monday, so last Monday, I appeared before the Treasury committee in the House of Commons alongside a panel of economists to basically to assess the scale of the response. And even at that point, we said, The Chancellor has done quite a bit, but it was clear it wasn't enough. We really need to try unexpected things, new things, like, for the very first time, the UK actually giving job retention support to make sure people do not lose their jobs. So, you know, and that kind of discussion and what we've seen in terms of the help for self-employed um, last Friday in the UK is another example of economists feeding into this policy, and I think globally, if you look around the world, very similar things happening as well. So economists and are busy, and some of them are also debunk debunking those myths.
1: <laughs> yes. Very. I mean, I I'd probably. Well, look. look what, what we're going to do. First of all, I'm going to I'm going to focus on David and Barat. We're going to talk a bit about the trajectory of the pandemic mm-hmm. and ha- whether or not we can trust the experts in terms of the the modelling and all these things. Um, Linda, I probably have more questions for you as an economist than I do. I feel like I have. My, uh, to a certain extent, I have my head around some of the the public health, but um, the economics. I feel like some people are saying we're inventing new tools. It's amazing. This this could be an incredibly valuable thing for governments. All the stuff we're doing. Um, but also, I, there are so many concerns about perverse incentives, about people falling through the cracks, and of course, about massive, massive um, numbers of people being pushed into extreme poverty, which they may struggle to escape. So uh, we're going to come back to all of those things. I know you don't have all the answers, but to pick your brains. But David and, and Barrett, um can, can I start with you? There have been very different, at least our media has portrayed the, the different responses from different countries as being quite extreme. Some countries, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea seem to have been very effective at reducing the spread. And the death rate seems to have been very different. David, can I start with you? You've worked all over the world. Were we slow to act? Have these other countries responded better than us? And um, what can we learn from them?
2: Well, it's clear that the countries that had SARS outbreaks in the past were much better prepared than the rest of the world. They learned a lesson in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and South Korea learned a lesson during the outbreaks of MERS coronavirus just recently. And so these countries are very well prepared to take care of a surge of patients in their hospitals. And they've also known that it's very important that people be reassured that they can participate, not only in protecting themselves, but in protecting others. And so we're seeing that people in Singapore and in Hong Kong are wearing a mask if they're coughing or sneezing to prevent others from being infected. And they're also doing other things that prevent themselves from being infected, physical distancing, staying away from crowds, and washing their hands, a whole series of things. So this is a good base on which these countries have been able to develop an outbreak response that identifies patients, isolates those patients, and keeps the economy going at the same
1: time. Do you have a sense that the countries that have really, really clamped down on this hard and stopped the spread are facing a very difficult choice because we know that these measures will stop it but we also know they're incompatible with the normal functioning of the economy and also really normal functioning of, of human life you know social contact the, the economy is not the only thing um, are Singapore now facing a very difficult challenge about when to allow the virus to spread I, my sense is this virus isn't going to go away and we're not talking about something like Ebola where we might be able to eliminate it in a region but instead we've only been talking about slowing the virus are, Are they making trouble for themselves with these very, very effective responses?
2: Well, what they've done is they've begun to see that the uh, reproductive number, that is the number of people infected from each person, is gradually increasing. And so they're beginning to relax some of the measures that they've had in order to see if that continues or if they can maintain a low level of transmission. And what they've done is much different than in European and North American countries because those countries have learned from Italy the problems that can occur if there's a surge of patients that the hospital system can't cope with. So their measures to stop the outbreak are different in Asia because they have a different goal. Their goal is not to keep transmission at a low level, it's to stop the surge of patients in hospitals.
1: And and do you feel like western countries in general i know we've had a lot of internal criticism of our government but i'm i'm asking you less to speak to that and more like you know we could see this coming in january or we should have been able to possibly were we too slow to act should we have been building all these extra ventilators now should we have been ordering personal protective equipment do you feel like we've been slow to act i feel you you're you're maybe a bit closer to that that planning um can you comment on that
2: well, I think that countries were, planned for a, were planning for a, a pandemic of influenza, and they had stocked up a certain amount ready for that, but no one expected this pandemic to occur. What happened in January was that China, by clamping down as hard as they did on the outbreak, was able to give the world a period of time to really prepare. Some countries did a better job at preparing than others, and some countries have chosen a different approach. The UK chose a bottom-up approach at the start to get the population to understand how they could work to prevent this outbreak from exploding, whereas other countries immediately came from a top-down approach. Which approach has been more effective? No one will know until the, I I think the jury's still out, actually.
1: Okay, lovely. So, so all the all the armchair pundits who are saying we we'd messed this up and we've we, we you know it's all been a total disaster in terms of our government's response. I my sense is that in fact we do, although everyone is scrambling, we we haven't made a, a total mess of it, and and that's the sense I get. You're you're saying as well, Barat. Can I can I talk to you about the feasibility of this massive testing? The sort of the typical response in public health emergencies involves massive testing, contact tracing specific quarantining of of people, and and we know that's been happening quite effectively in countries like Korea. Um, We don't seem to be doing that now. Why have we been so slow on the testing compared to, say, China and Korea?
3: Before we go on to that, if I may add to what Professor Heyman has just been discussing with, because I think it is important. And I, as a, uh, a former consultant, communicable disease control, learned The basics, the basics, the basics are you test, you identify, you isolate, you contact trace, and the sooner you act, the better the results. Therefore, keeping the lid tight and tightly controlled is a fundamental thing that you do in an outbreak situation. Therefore, this idea of letting go of testing, identifying, isolating, contact tracing happened a bit too early in the United Kingdom, and we are still wondering, why did it happen? Why did you give up on it too early? Because in the early days, as you noticed, in the in China and, and, and Singapore, they clamped down hard and fast. And as a result, you keep the case numbers down. And by keeping case numbers down, you have better control. So that's what I wanted to add to the conversation that, that has just followed. Coming back to the issue of testing, My colleagues and I are at a bit of a loss with regards to the United Kingdom, which is very, very good. It is a a highly developed, we have a lot of biochemical industries in, in the UK as to why we're having hiccups with regards to testing, the PCR testing, which is what I'm interested in, because the PCR testing is what allows me to identify case or not. The antibody tests that come later, they are, An afterthought for me, it doesn't help me with my outbreak control measures. So really the testing that I want is of the reverse transcriptase PCR. So that I can identify whether just of just
1: to be clear, just to be clear for anyone listening, the difference is that one test can test whether or not a person has had the illness and has made antibodies, and that that can be very very valuable in some aspects of the response. But um, the test that Barat is talking about identifies the virus itself, and so it tells you whether you are actively infected at the moment. Sorry, Barat, to interrupt yeah, you. I no, just want to that, make that, sure that people. No, that's so, very good. So you're you're, to... you're interested in you're interested in knowing who has the virus. As at the moment that they have it, and I agree and 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 that it's it's a complicated test. it can take several hours to do it requires people with quite expert training working machines um, and using reagents. but what's been the delay? China and Korea were able to roll this out pretty effectively. why why have we been so slow we We do have labs all over the country, as you say that could be doing PCR
3: yeah Zand just to add. The PCR test is not that complicated to do, and that's why I feel a little bit of frustration that it, it it is a good test, but it is not that complicated to do. And we can scale up very quickly. And I just have a little bit of disappointment that if countries like South Korea, Singapore and others can, and Germany, can ramp up their testing, why we have not been able to do it, I don't know the answer.
1: I mean, I think I, uh, no. I was I was just wondering if, if David did, did know the answer, or at least could have some suggestions. I've spoken to people who've said we're all lazy idiots in this country, and I've spoken to lots of other people who've said actually, although it is a relatively straightforward bit of science, as you say, it's not a pregnancy test. It's not a thing. It's not like a blood glucose test. It, it still does require reagents and a certain amount of complexity and time to do it, and 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 so in fact, the reagents and machines are in short supply. Have you got any insight into into where? The, where the Where the truth lies between those polls, David.
2: Well, you know, I think what countries are doing is the best that they can do based on their risk assessment. And you know, I can't make a judgment as to why um, the UK is not testing or why Germany is not testing, or why Korea is testing more. All I can say is that when you do test and identify patients, As Bharat said, you can then make sure that they're properly isolated. And the same is true with the contacts of those patients. If they're tested, they can be shown to be, they can be infected and they can be be isolated as well and prevent new chains of transmission. But there are other tests that are also important as you said earlier, and that's an antibody test, which when validated will be able to tell whether people have had infection in the past. And that's the test that's also been lacking in all countries but it's rapidly coming online. And I believe the UK has said they will have it online within a couple of weeks now.
3: But, but if I may add, because I am the outbreak man and I want to keep case numbers down. And therefore the antibody test is all well and good. However, it is the PCR test which allows me to control my outbreak. And it is very important to know the difference between the two. The antibody for me is an after the event test. It allows me to say, you have been infected, I have got proof of antibodies in you. It is not as accurate a test as the PCR test is. The PCR test also has its issues, but the PCR test allows me to know whether I need to pull this person out of circulation or not. And that's very important.
1: So, I hope um, we're going to come, I'm sure there will be, I know that there are lots of questions about testing, so I'm going to come on to that. Um, The other thing that I hope we can get to before the end of the hour is this, um, all the kind of controversy, the team of Oxford scientists saying this week that, that, you know, everyone's already infected and the the government's modelling is wrong. Um, We've had lots of contradictory models coming out of, um, or or, or at least the reporting has been that the models are contradictory. I I think they'll come up in the questions. So, if I can keep, ask David and Barrett to keep those in your minds. Linda, before we we throw it open to the audience i'm I'm just interested about the impact on the economy i'm amazed to still be reading articles that say you know it seems the ft i think there was a headline today that says we do seem to be at high risk of a depression i I would have thought it was completely Mm. inevitable is that right
2: oh dear Um, (laughs) uh,
1: (laughs) say say something cheerful the markets Uh, are listening don't 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 make us depressed linda
0: I, I, I was about to uh, to give a quote by a great economist Galbraith, who said, "Economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable."
1: <laughs> okay, good, good, good. All right, um, dodging the that, question. No, no,
0: that's. <laughs> no, no, no. But what I can tell you is, um, you know, I, I think it's the recessionary part of a business cycle, or just, you know, it'd be it'd be very, very hard. To basically to say that we're not either in recession or recessionary in most economies because of this, because of the sudden stop nature, this incredibly mm. disruptive you know, crisis. So I think whether or not it becomes a depression, which, by the way, there's, no, there's not an easy technical definition for a depression. A recession is two negative quarters consecutively when the economy contracts ronald reagan's definition is a recession is when your neighbor loses his job a depression is when you lose your job so we don't have you know i, I say that not not you know it's it's no, I, I, it is I, I, actually yeah, difficult yeah. To where you
1: sit depends who. upon where you stand yeah, yeah exactly
0: so for a lot of people the worry will feel like it is this depression because they're worried about their jobs and in countries with very weak social safety nets that is going to be a concern. So for them, it doesn't really matter if the economy as a whole is recessionary. For them, it's gonna feel like a depression. So this actually takes me to the importance of government policies. When demand in the economy from the private sector dries up like it is now, the government must step in. They have to, firstly, try to keep people in employment. And that's what the job retention schemes are about. The one in the UK is the first time the British government's ever done it. They didn't do it in the banking crisis a decade ago, but now they're doing it. And you can be furloughed. Instead of becoming unemployed, the government will pay 80% of your wages plus your pension contribution, plus national insurance contribution. And then the other part is the employers, which are the actual firms. The viable ones have cash flow problems. They also need help. And obviously we need to keep the viable ones afloat. And the gig economy is now very massive. There's a lot of people who fall between the cracks or in self-employment, the benefit system wouldn't really be enough. And so it's not just the UK, but the US has just, Congress passed a bill that for the very first time helps the gig economy workers who are going to get unemployment benefits the same as employed workers. So if Governments can come together, provide cash flow support for businesses, uh, relax rules that don't need to be in a crisis, for instance, around bankruptcy, and most of all, protect people, then that prevents this recessionary shock from being a deeper, mm-hmm. longer recession or depression
1: can I ask them there are a couple of i think one of the questions that are on is on lots of non economist minds is about the balance between rescuing people like uh, the kind of people I know who work in cafes or, or own small businesses or are self employed in the arts for instance versus bailing out an airline and helping out the billionaires if you 're an economist, is that an important question the sort of the fairness of this response? Mm. I, I think it feels to yeah. me like there are many individuals who may fall through the cracks, but lots of large businesses will be rescued and propped up.
0: Fairness is absolutely essential because I think what you want to make sure is the response is helping those who most need it. So you can see this in terms of, for instance, the self employment measure that's being put in in the UK has a cutoff in terms of tradable profits trading profits, because it's trying to target those who need it. Now, for big businesses, you know, I think the dilemma is um, a lot of them are also big employers. Now, most employers are SMEs, and they will get help. But if we think about um, the airlines you mentioned or rail, which is effectively being nationalized in the UK for the next six months, you know, these are, you know, these are industries companies that we we need to operate, but if they get help, it has to be bespoke and it needs to come with conditions. For instance, if you get support, you need to hang on to your workers. You can't use the money to buy back shares, all of these things, are properly imposed to make sure that what you're doing is preserving employment and helping them with cash flow. And I think that is absolutely crucial. In the UK, there's just squeezed middle of firms who are being left out by the government measures. And it's the same case in a lot of other countries. because a lot of just smaller companies may not have, say, an investment grade rating. They can't access the help being offered by central banks. So to me, it's specifically looking out for those who've been left out of the measures. That's got to be the next Mm. priority. Oh, that and getting all these schemes up and running because uh, the delay in getting money to people is absolutely scary for a lot of people. And self-employment support won't come in until June. Furloughed workers, um, that probably money won't come until May, hopefully sooner. All of those things I think must be considered um, and this is why there's some talk of being a check being sent to people uh, you know again the U.S. is doing this below a certain income level because it just gets some money into their pockets and it was done in the last recession in the U.S. and the financial crisis as well as in 2001 Hong Kong's done it Japan is looking at doing it and that's all getting cash quickly into people's pockets so I think all of these things have to be looked at
1: Good. So we, we probably have not heard the last of the, um, the, the, the finessing of, of the rescue package. Um, Linda, I've got so many more questions, but my questions are not as important as the audience's questions. So let's start going. And I'm, I'm going to try and dish these out, um, kind of as, as they come up. And, um, if you can keep your answers. Compact, uh, and I'll try and, if you don't mind speakers, I'll, I'll hassle you all through it um, so that we can get to as many as possible. Okay, question number one, how long after you've had the virus should you no longer be contagious? How long are you not passing it on to anyone else? Um, uh, David, can I th- throw this one to you?
2: Yeah, and I think Bharat will want to add as well, but my understanding is that seven days after the time of, inf- of si- signs and symptoms developing, a person can be fairly sure that they're free of virus, even if they're still in a hospital and in critical condition, the virus should by that time have been eliminated from the body. Although it can stay longer in those people who are critically ill. But Bharat is closer to clinical medicine than I, He may wanna add something.
3: Thank you, thank
2: you, David. And and
3: my extra bit is I agree with what uh, Professor Heyman has just said. And I would also like to add that in some categories of patients, Patients who are immune suppressed, they may go on to secrete the viruses for much longer. And then one more thing which we really need to address and investigate properly, and that is the virus is present in human feces. And we have not really evaluated properly whether there is no virus post-recovery or is there virus after recovering from your seven-day illness. So that is something where people are looking into. And because there is this thing of virus may be present in human faeces, important that you exercise extreme cleanliness after the event. Best advice. Wash your hands, everybody. Wash your hands. One more thing. That's another reason. Put toilet- yes. Put toilet <laughs> lid down and then you flush it is a better, pra- a better practice to undertake.
1: Thank you very much, Barat. You will have solved family arguments up and down the UK, possibly all <laughs> over the world about whether the toilet seat goes up or down. The toilet seat goes down. You should wash your hands. And the government advice is that after seven days, um, and I think your, your exception for immune uh, suppressed people is, is, is really important, Barat. But yes, for instance, I have just, I had a fever. I had a cough. I've self-quarantined for seven days. Today is my first day out and um, I'm still coughing. I feel guilty to cough in the supermarket, but I hope that I'm not infecting anybody else. Next question, how are corona patients registered and who is collecting these numbers? Uh, are we are we in fact kind of keeping a database of corona people yes, and are. are we treating them differently to anyone else? Yeah, we are. Okay. The answer is simple. It, it has become an officially
3: notification of infectious diseases. It's a statutory requirement for any clinician. It doesn't have to be a doctor. It can be any uh, attending clinician. So it can be a nurse, et cetera. If they suspect on clinical grounds that this is a coronavirus, then they have to uh, statutorily, that means by law, uh, let us know. And, and the collecting body is Public Health England for England. There are similar bodies in Scotland, Northern Ireland and, and Wales.
2: Let me add, though, that the only reported cases of coronavirus infection globally to the World Health Organization are those that are confirmed. So many times, countries are not looking for the virus in those who are less seriously ill, and they don't report those cases. What's a good indicator, though, of what's going on, unfortunately, is the mortality. Because if you do have increasing mortality, you know that you probably do have, in addition, increasing patients, even though the reporting may not be accurate, because the reporting is only good as good as, the, as is the testing.
1: Your views on vaccines, uh, several people asking about this. Will a vaccine be made within a year, do you think? I I know that this is a nightmare to ask, but um, Barat.
3: I don't think so. This is not an easy thing to make. And whilst we have a lot of hope on vaccines, one year lucky hit is an extremely lucky hit. There is a lot of processes to go through. We need to find a candidate protein. We need to find a protein or a item from the virus that is antigenic, safe, and produces long-lasting immunity. So there are several hurdles here. And and I'm sitting on the fence by saying, I don't think we will have a vaccine in the near future.
1: David, you're, you're nodding gloomily.
2: Yes. Um, you know, the, the process of developing a vaccine depends first on developing the vaccine, as Barat said then testing it in animals to see if it's effective and safe in animals, and then going on to humans. And that's a long process. Fortunately, recently, it has been identified that there is a a monkey that can be infected, a macaque can be infected like humans and be a model for testing vaccines. But it is a long process, and there will be shortcuts made. The regulatory agencies are trying to accommodate these, but there will be no compromise on safety and on effectiveness and on the duration of
4: immunity. of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code Squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code Squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV
1: That's lovely, thank you very much. Okay, do we know how long the virus can stay active or alive or infectious on different surfaces, particularly things like food packaging? If I go to the supermarket, I buy a a can of milk and somebody, a can of milk, a bottle of milk, whatever milk comes in, and I have, uh, and someone's coughed on their hand and touched it, and then I touch it, how long is it infectious before For for, and what can we do about that?
3: It's uh, how long is a piece of string a question? And I would like people to stop focusing on how long does it survive on certain surfaces. You know, suffice for me to say that on hard surfaces, plastics especially, it lasts a lot longer. So if you have a nice, warm, humid environment and it's a plastic surface, it may last a lot longer. Whereas if it is on a drying surface, it may last shorter time because it dries out, desiccates and dies. But the important message is this. Think about it as every surface, every item where humans congregate is infected, infectious, and a risk hazard. And if you treat it that way, you are not making the mistake of saying, this surface is safe, this surface is not safe. And you, know, you will make mistakes if you go along that pathway. So it's better to consider all surfaces unsafe, wash your hands frequently, and that would be a much
1: better strategy. I love it that's 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 brilliant and I think that's much easier for for people to manage that is there proof uh, I I am well aware that we've got sort of two two medics and I'm and, and 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 an economist um Linda there are some questions coming your way so nobody um nobody worry for Linda getting bored um but uh, there's a couple of few more I for the medics
0: fascinating.
1: Oh, is there proof <laughs> yeah, no no we're all we're everyday's a school day yeah. is there proof once once you've got the virus um is there do we believe that that will confer immunity and if so, for how long?
3: We don't know. We, we, All we know is that you've got uh, evidence of immunity against the coronavirus, yeah? But we don't know if this immunity is long-lasting, permanent, robust, can be reactivated. All those are extra hurdles to face. I, I'm sure Professor Haven's got some extra bits to add to what I've just said. David? I, would, I
2: would only add, yeah, I would only add that immunity for other coronaviruses that cause the common cold does not last a very long time. In fact, you can have a common cold from a coronavirus this year, and you can have that same virus infect you and cause a cold next year. So this, the hope is that this virus, because it's a new virus in humans might in fact cause greater, stronger immunity, but nobody knows for sure. And that's the problem with vaccine development as, as, as well. Will a vaccine provide the immunity? As Bharat said, it will protect us in the long term.
1: And Linda, I think people often feel that economists can be a bit hard-hearted, but I think economists hearing that and saying this virus isn't going to go away, it is terribly infectious and it may even not confer very long-lasting immunity, and and so we uh, we are facing this situation where we're going to have to deal with it for a long period of time. This, th- th- then the economists start to feel rather desperate about getting people back to work. H- how do you balance those? How do you balance those concerns, Linda?
0: I think the priority has to keep people safe, and I think this is something that pretty much all countries have, you know, certainly um, agreed to or agree on. I think one of the things to stress is, until there is a vaccine, and obviously the, um, the scientists will know this much better, it may well be we have to get used to some, you know, some degree of social distancing measures, remote working, becoming a more regular feature, until we're sure that the crisis, um, the medical crisis is under control. So I think for economists, that's something that quite a few are, are certainly aware of. I don't think there's any expectation somehow that, you know, we'll get back to normal, uh, normal, as in, I guess, be able to leave our homes, <laughs> you know, uh, very quickly until that is the case.
1: Yeah, lovely. Uh, look, I'm so sorry, everybody. I have not been mentioning the names of the people who are asking such excellent questions. I'm sorry about that. I can now I can now see where your names are, so I will start mentioning. them, But apologies for that. Uh, the latest data from Gov.uk shows a lower number of respiratory deaths for the week. Do we know why the the deaths might be might be going down? Um, is this a reason to be optimistic, or is this just variation in the uh, in the data? And that's from Anne Bird.
3: What, is this for the United Kingdom you're referring to?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
3: look, uh, data takes time to catch up. And remember, we are in the early exponential rise phase of this outbreak. So this is too early days for us to sit back and say it's looking good or bad. Uh, we need to brace ourselves. And the reason why we need to brace ourselves is we are in the exponential rising phase of this outbreak. Whatever the numbers that we have at the moment, they're subject to revision. But what is quite clear is we are in the upward trend. So therefore, brace ourselves for cases, people needing intensive care and respiratory support.
2: It's coming. And and Zan, that's also the picture globally. Deaths continue to rise. They may be decreasing temporarily in some countries, a lag of reporting or whatever. But deaths in general are increasing, which shows, as Bharat said, that this epidemic is still increasing in
1: size. There's a lovely question here from Jonathan Seeley, which I think is very interesting. Governments and all kinds of agencies are keen to manage the flow of information very carefully. And Jonathan wants to know, what are we not being told? Brackets for fear of causing panic. My sense is probably probably not a huge amount, and the, tra- the apparent transparency is probably real. Is is that the case? Clearly, there may be emerging plans that they don't want to they don't want to leak too early. But are, are we being told everything, or is there are there are there secret secret bits of bad news? You think that that may be um, withheld from the population?
3: Yeah, but Zan, you know that. What you don't know, you don't know.
1: <laughs> so you know. But you, you. I, I suppose I would say you've sat in. You've sat in. In in you you um the three of you in different ways. But 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 you and David, in terms of epidemic management, have sat in the room and been privy to things that not everyone else is aware of. Is there a sense of saying, look, we have to we have to manage this message very carefully, or is do you feel like we are likely to be being told what's happening? I, I know that you're not prepared to leak anything, but is the transparency real? If I may go first, (laughs) people like myself
3: from universities are known as troublemakers and it is good to have that badge because we like to challenge, question and question again Mm. and hold people to account and we're not doing it because we enjoy doing it, but because we want real science to be practiced and we want to contribute to the science decisions that the government may be taking. And therefore, my colleagues and I have been pressing for what evidence are you looking at? And finally, SAGE has published a series of documents that it is using as reference material, which is a good thing because that's good transparency. And we would like to um, contribute, but contribute from outside and say good things when good things are going on and add to come on, you could do this as well. So you know that's where we are operating for. We're working together, and the government may see us as an irritant, but we're not an irritant. We want to make things better.
1: Okay, good, good. No, that's that's reassuring, David. Do you, do you have a sense that we're we're being reasonably reasonably well informed?
2: Well, I think it's been globally quite interesting to see how people have shared data, either in medical journals, or where they're put in front of the paywall, wall, or, or just by informally sharing and sharing with WHO. In fact, the Chinese were not at all transparent at the beginning of the SARS outbreak. They didn't want to report it. They finally did report it when they were accused publicly of putting the rest of the world at risk. And the Chinese today are reporting freely, as are other countries. Now, of course, this is government reporting. And there may be things that the government doesn't report, as in all countries. But at least there's been enough reported for a good understanding of the virus and what's going on worldwide.
1: And Linda, um, I, I know this is not quite a, a question for, uh, this isn't quite economics, but I feel like every bit of policy had a bit of conspiracy behind it. When the pubs weren't closed, all the pictures of Boris with the, the, the owner of Weatherspoons were circulated. When the contract for the ventilators was given to Dyson, all the pictures of <laughs> Tory MPs with James Dyson were circulated. In, in fact, is, is that how the Chancellor is making economic policy or is it, is it driven by um, a, a group of academics and other <laughs> wonks and nerds and good people?
0: I actually think it is the latter. I think um, there's been a real um, effort to get input. So I mentioned just how much has happened over the last, you know, seven to 10 days in this country. And I think, um, you know, the instances um, that you mentioned, uh, you know, there's always going to be a bit of that. But I think the, you know, the, the thrust of the policies, which in this country have been really extraordinary in economic terms, these have been the right ways to, approach it and I would, I would hope that the next phase of it will look similar. I, I just don't think there's any sense, um, I'm not getting any sense that this is a time to be doing anything other than following expert advice um, and expert guidance, provided the experts can agree. So on this one, the economists mm-hmm. are closer together for once and it's actually the medical community <laughs> that might be a little bit split when you mentioned the Oxford versus Imperial study earlier.
1: Well we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Linda, while I'm on you, um Hillary Pearson wants to know why don't the major supermarkets form a cartel to reduce their prices. Should we be allowing cartels?
0: So the government is allowing cartels right now. So oh really? Um,
1: oh okay. Yeah, well, brilliant so, question. I, I actually didn't. I yeah. thought it sounded a bit daft. But Hillary, uh, you know better than me. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um Okay, that's that's <laughs> yeah. really interesting. that's that's lovely. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. Oh yeah. sorry, yeah, Linda, go ahead.
0: I, I, I was just gonna Um They're both allowing cartels to help keep um, supplies, um, bulk purchases, and keep pricing down. The CMA, the Competitions Markets Authority, has also formed a COVID-19 task force to prevent price gouging because the other side is Right. The point cartel- of the cartel is to
1: get the price yeah. down, not up. Yeah. Okay. That's
0: right. <laughs> just wanted to mention that. Good. It goes both ways. The
1: good kind of cartel. That's what we want. That's right. Lovely. <laughs> yes.
0: um,
1: Susie, um, Susie Ed uh, wants to know, um, some people wear a face mask when they go out, others don't. What do you what do you advise? So, look, uh, in the United Kingdom, Western nations, we're not
3: used to wearing masks. And if you put on this mask and you're fiddling forever with your um, getting it right and you're having a lot of excess activity around your nose and mouth, you may in error introduce infection that way through that mask. Furthermore, the mask gets lovely and moist very, very quickly. And when it gets lovely and moist, it is not going to actually hold back viruses that wish to find their way to you. And it may give you a false sense of security. And if you just think about it, it's a nanometer, right? It's a tiny, tiny little speck. And the the pores on the mask are not necessarily good barriers. One more thing, the masks are really good in a clinical setting. So where you have the cough, the person is actually ill, then there, that mask is a very good idea. And similarly for the clinician, to put on a fresh mask every time they see a patient, that's also a good idea. But I'm sure David's going to add to it.
2: Yeah, I would just add that we had a really lively discussion today at a World Health Organization meeting, again, by Internet. And at that discussion, there were um, the Asian groups and the European groups were talking about the wearing of masks. And the Asians concluded that, number one, they always wear a mask when they're sick, when they're coughing to prevent others from getting getting droplets when they cough or sneeze, and that they should be worn then, as Bharat said, not only by patients in the hospital, but in the community. While at the same time, wearing masks, feeling that you're protecting yourself is not thought to be effective, yet it's a confidence-building measure for some people, and Hong Kong, for example, has promoted it, whereas Singapore has not. So it all depends on what countries feel that their cultures are more likely to be able to accept, and which will build confidence in those people. There's also temperature changing, uh, taking every time you enter a public building or enter um, a classroom in any part of Asia. That isn't done in Europe, but it's a confidence-building measure that they use in Asia to let people know that they're surrounded by people who don't have a fever. So there are various things that can be done, but maths as a protection against infection, as Bharat said, are not. Known to be effective.
1: Okay, that's that's lovely. So if you're, um, I, I, I think I think that should answer the answer the question. So don't, don't panic if you see people outside with masks, but there is a role for masks as well. Germany's mortality rate seems to be lower than everywhere else. And yet, my understanding is there is not very much mutation that doesn't seem to be a German strain. Now, I don't know if there's viral epigenetics that are maybe important to measure that, that just the simple genomics don't tell you, but David, have you got any idea why Germany seems to be an outlier in Europe?
2: Well, first, it's important to know that the virus is fairly stable. There are over 600 specimens in a database called GISAID, which come from around the world, and they've shown slight what we call drift, slight mutations, but nothing major. And there's been no way of correlating that at all with the virulence of the organism or its transmissibility. So I think that the German theory or the theory that Germany is having less mortality because they have a different virus is wrong. The real answer is that Germany knows how to manage its patients and hasn't had a, a, an excess of patients that have overwhelmed its health systems. The U.K. is doing quite well also in managing patients, as are, as are many other countries. But what happened in Italy was a massive infection at the same time of a group of elderly people, and elderly people are at greater risk of mortality. And in addition, the hospitals were overwhelmed and couldn't admit all those
1: people. Lovely. Barat, anything to add on that, Barat?
2: No,
3: I I, I totally agree with Professor Heyman that, you know, there is no virus one and virus two. We will get uh, drifts, but uh, it's the same bug,
1: I'm afraid. There's a, a few questions here. Um, uh, Linda Reese Johansson is asking, but there'll be other people worried about it. If they've got mild asthma, does that make you vulnerable? Mm-hmm. The, the, the guidelines, when I looked on on the Public Health England website, I felt the guidelines were a little a little vague on this. They talked about chronic health conditions. If someone has mild asthma, which huge numbers of people do, um, do they consider themselves vulnerable? Should they behave differently to other people?
3: So, look, uh, I'm happy to take that question. I look at it as two independent events. You have asthma and you may, you may not get infected with coronavirus. Just because you've got infected with the coronavirus doesn't mean it's going to necessarily make your asthma worse because most asthma is allergen caused. It's caused by things like pollen that you're sensitive to smoke, dust, pollution, that sort of thing. What we have to be aware of nevertheless is a asthmatic may be taking steroids to keep that, that asthma under control. And by virtue of taking those steroids, you may be slightly, very, very marginally immune suppressed. And therefore, you, if you were to get infected by the coronavirus, the coronavirus infection may be a little bit greater in the asthmatic. But I think the best way to deal with this is to say, look, we don't know. There are two independent events. Lovely.
1: Edward Ed, Edmund Jankowski has invoked President Trump uh, saying, is President Trump correct to query whether the restrictions on the economy may cause more damage than the virus? I mean, President Trump has a kind of snake-like instinct for what people want to hear, and his ratings are doing very well at the moment, despite what I think people on the outside might regard as as not brilliant management in, in, in many aspects of the US response. Linda, can I put that to you? Is, is how How are we going to make that calculation? I know you've already addressed a little bit already, Mm. but he is raising a question in a a slightly unpleasant way um, that that it must be on lots and lots of people's minds.
0: Mm. I think that um, the restrictions on the economy are really to make sure that we control and help the health um, side of the population, and that will have a negative economic impact. So whether or not it has a longer-term impact depends on how governments address what you know are the restrictive effects. So in other words, if people have to work from home, they're going to be worried about their income, they're not going to buy as much. And it's all the things that we've discussed. You've got to help people stay in work. You've got to replace income. You've got to help businesses. If Those things come into effect. There's something which is very short and sharp today may not necessarily have a longer-term impact. What we know from economic studies and economic history is that if you do not help people, And they become unemployed and detached from the labour market. It's called hysteresis. and That's how you turn a short-term, however sharp downturn into having an impact on the entire potential of the economy in the years ahead. So that's probably, I think, why the government response is so keen and so good to uh, must focus on.
1: I love it. I can see your hand, Barat. But I think, I think what, what you're saying is really, really, just, just to make sure that, that, that we've understood it, you're saying there's a bit of a false dichotomy there, that actually it is possible to preserve the economy and um, do things to strengthen it, even as we fight the disease. And it is not simply a, a balance of one thing and another. Um, Barat, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
3: No, not at all. Linda, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. I am very concerned about America and its approach to mm-hmm. infection control uh i did a little bit of training at the centers for disease control in atlanta georgia america there are some very clever very nice people at the cdc in atlanta and they have been sidelined and as a result today we noticed that america has the greatest number of cases greater than china its population is much less than that of china that is a huge red flag this is something seriously wrong in the united states of america you must do something about it because innocent Americans will die. This
1: is not right. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, to to pick up on that idea, there's a question from Mark Dubois. I don't know if it is the Mark Dubois who used to head up um, MSF UK, but if it is, hello. And if it's not, still, hello, Mark. The question is, when you talk about the trade-offs between lives and prosperity, you seem to be talking about the national level. But of course, it's a global question. Does anyone have any thoughts about the impact of the virus pandemic in the poorest places in the world, South Sudan, Central African Republic, and so on and so on? I think it's so we are so caught up in our immediate surroundings some, in some cases our immediate neighborhoods but mm-hmm. but of course there are people in the world who are even more vulnerable than us can you can you I, i'd like everyone to talk on that mm-hmm. can i just go through you one at a time starting with you david
2: yeah well you know we don't yet understand in many developing countries what the full impact of this virus will be especially in sub-saharan africa where the population is much younger overall than it is in europe so i think the hopes are that this virus won't be so damaging to certain population groups in certain parts of the world. But it is true that any pressure on the economy and any pressure on people who live from hand to mouth will cause problems, not only in the short term, but in the long term.
3: My concerns are, and I have articulated this many times, is if we have runaway uncontrolled infection in the poorer countries, what happens is you have an amplification of number of cases and hence number of viruses. And that amplification makes that virus more persistent and it will come to bite the richer countries. Therefore, my advice has always been, whilst you are paying money to control the infection in your country, the Western nations. The Western nations must support the WHO to also control the infection in the poorer nations, because if you don't, it will come back to
1: also harm us as second, third wave. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the moral issues, there is a pragmatic uh, case for Absolutely. doing that as well. I agree. And L- Linda, clearly there is a um, a threat to to low-income countries and many people around the world, uh, not just in terms of the virus, but also that they are at the end of a, they are the final step in a collapsing economy where they, they are the people mm-hmm. whose, whose jobs and livelihoods may evaporate completely. H- how should we be responding globally to that issue?
0: Extending credit to countries that need it, who are using it to strengthen their health systems, protect people and support firms. There's already efforts between the IMF and the World Bank to make this money immediately available. And rich countries should forgive or at least put a moratorium on debt repayment. From these countries because obviously a lot of developing countries are also indebted to the richer countries so in other words we should be doing everything possible both for moral reasons and also some of the practical ones because emerging economies tend to have weaker comprehensive health systems has already been mentioned so the chances of the impact having a human cost is, is greater in some of those countries than it should be unless there is help and i think Also, if you look at the economic data, whenever people, investors, businesses start to pull back, the amount of money that's actually left developing countries, if you imagine a graph, in the global financial crisis, money flowed out pretty steeply. In this crisis, the chart looks like this. It's a complete Mm -hmm. moving out. And this is money that's needed to help these countries with their financing, with their businesses. So absolutely. The global response has to be there on the medical front and certainly the economic front because the one thing we have learned i think is that the world is very connected and if we want the global economy to recover we have to make sure all the parts of it are being supported so that we can come out of this and not have lasting damage.
1: Today, the prime minister, this is a question from uh, Marbelez Bain Azkarate. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing it badly as someone whose name is also difficult to pronounce. I feel like I get a a free pass on on bad pronunciation, (laughs) but there we go. The prime minister, the chief medical officer and the health secretary have all been confirmed as having COVID-19 today. How can the public be assured that the government is definitely in control of this pandemic? How can we maintain confidence in our experts and our political leaders when they can't even stop themselves getting it? I I actually have an answer to that as well, but I'm more interested in hearing from the panel. Again, David, can I start with you? What's your response to that?
2: Well, certainly viruses don't select any one person to infect. And what's happening is that there is transmission in the community that we don't understand. And these people have certainly been in contact with people who were infected, and they didn't know they were in contact with those people, either because those people didn't know themselves or because they weren't being honest. And as a result, they've become infected. We can only hope that this infection will not be a serious infection in them or really in anyone. All right. I think Professor Heyman has made a very, very
3: important point, even without realising it, and that is... He probably did realise it. He did. (laughs) Being in the business, take it as read. He said, this infection is transmitting ways we don't fully understand, and that is really important because we know what we know, but we also must have our minds open to we don't know what we don't know. And therefore, keep that mind open that there may be other modes of transmission. Yeah, it's very important as a scientist. So with respect to ministers and prime ministers getting uh, infected, as Professor Heyman has said, a virus doesn't look for whom it infects everyone because no one has got immunity to it. Uh, What has raised a storm in the UK will be this. How is it possible for Prince Charles, the Prime Minister, and other members of government to have the test, which is not available to healthcare workers and other people in the community. This will mm. raise a huge storm for your political pundits,
1: your sociologists, to answer. We don't have to do the storm now. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I guess the, 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 the other thing, it seems important, to me, to say is that, and 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 you two, correct me if I'm wrong about this. I'm if I'm wrong, you, you must tell me. But we are trying to slow this virus down. We're not. We, we don't believe that we can stop it. And so, um, anyone who gets it, uh, we are all. Uh, it, it, there is an inevitable spread of this, and so the idea that anyone in government would believe that they were taking measures to completely prevent the possibility of them catching the virus that would I- effectively be wrong and, and counter to government advice that we are we we have to slow it but stopping it is impossible and so um i i having spent time with matt, matt hancock backstage uh, after question time um he is well aware of the advice of the hand washing advice they have all been and having been into the department of health and social care they're all doing it they're all doing their best but they are doing what the rest of us do and also trying to live their lives is that a reasonable way of thinking about it? it that in fact them catching it is not it's not clearly we must be concerned for them as humans who are ill but um them catching it is not a disaster and it's not a failure of policy is that a reasonable way of thinking about it
3: yes i know what the the presentation is very important and you've got to get the messages right in the right order so to use expressions like i'm out there to get herd immunity by infection has upset a Hmm. lot of people because that is what biologically inevitably happens. But the presentation could be better in that we say in the process of time, people will eventually encounter the virus and eventually recover from it, et cetera, in that way. So so the, 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 the way the herd immunity concept was introduced upset a lot of people, but it is otherwise inevitable that the normal course of infections like the coronavirus, which is quite infectious, it will find most of us and infect us over a period of time. What we want to do is get infected in small aliquots, if we are going to, because that allows the healthcare system to be able to manage smaller numbers. Because if you have 10,000 people suddenly presenting for treatment, we can't do it.
1: David, anything to add on that, or are you you happy with that level of nuance?
2: Well, I would just say that we've had coronaviruses in the past that have certainly come to populations in the same way. And they've caused, they caused the common cold today. They didn't spread with the speed that this virus spread. They may have been very, very limited at the start, but they learned how to adapt to human populations and they're now circulating in all populations. So this is not a new type of event. It's just a globalized event that has occurred very rapidly. And we need now to, to do one thing more than just try to protect ourselves. We need to really try to protect the elderly, those who have comorbidities in particular. And that's why I think the governments in all countries are concerned about the nursing homes and the homes for the elderly, making sure that they are also as secure as can be against this virus.
1: We're very close to wrapping up. Um, I have sort of one, one more question for for the medics and one, one for you, Linda. Is there, in, in the creation of so many enormously, uh, in, in, or rather in giving access to very large quantities of money very rapidly in the creation of so many new schemes, there is the possibility for perverse incentives and there's also the possibility for profiteering, I think. How concerned should we be about that? An example I would give you is a, a friend of mine runs a, a, a small company in London. London and said he will very rapidly go bust and he will be snapped up by endless numbers of venture capital people who know they can get an absolute bargain on lots of little companies now. They've got full war chests and they perfected their, their perfecting techniques they developed in 2008. So, should we worry about profiteering and, and, and perverse incentives with a new range of measures which which can't have been thought through as, as well as they might?
0: I think that um, the CMA task force that I mentioned before, I think, is going to. It is actually intended to try and stop some of that. Now, the case of your um, that you just mentioned, that's very difficult to to intervene. But if there was enough cash support for that company, then perhaps it just keeps them viable for a bit longer. Now, in general, one of the reasons why, for instance, the self-employed measure in the UK was designed. Um, the way it was with an income threshold, and excludes people who are basically owner, um, directors of companies, is because they were worried about fraud. Now, this is very difficult because obviously a balance has to be struck. You want to make sure that overall the system works for as many people as possible. But I think the thing I would probably say at this point is even if you do end up with some cases of fraud, it would almost be better to err on the side of helping as many people as possible and certainly not worry too much about some of the terms you, you tend to hear about, like moral hazard or you know incentives, because... It is a crisis. It is an absolute economic crisis, as well as human crisis. And the schemes that have been designed have been done quickly. And yes, there's going to be problems with those. But I would say the biggest problem with all of these schemes is the speed of getting money to people. And that's a complete function of the fact that HMRC has never had to contact self-employed people to offer them money. It is a nice thought, by the way, they would do that. And you know, with the job retention scheme, all of these things. So I think to me, that's the challenge of a, of a quickly designed scheme. There will be flaws, but I hope we learn from it and we'll be better prepared. And if social safety nets get strengthened after this, that's no bad thing. So we'd have better measures in place for the next time there's a pandemic and the next time there's a crisis.
1: Thank you so much, Linda. A final question to um, David and Barat. This is from Neil Wallace, and uh, it will be on many people's minds. A recent well-publicized Oxford University study said that up half the UK population may already have contracted COVID-19. Is it conceivable that such large numbers have already been affected under the radar? Is herd immunity closer than we think? If not, what do the speakers think is the likely current level of infection in the population? And I guess I would all... Yes, in fact, I won't add any more to that. Yeah, well, What what, what do you think about that study and what do you think about the current level of infection in the population? Barak, can I start with you and then we'll come to David? So I I think 50% at
3: this early phase is a little bit um, over the top. I wouldn't expect 50% of a 65, 70 million number of population to already have been infected. So uh, I don't think so. The trouble is, because we're not testing and we haven't got the antibody tests, it's difficult for us to tell us with some degree of accuracy where we stand. So, But inevitably, with passage of time, so if you ask me in, say, a year's time, has 50% of the population encountered the virus, I might say yes. At this point in time, I'm a bit doubtful.
2: Yeah, you know, this is epidemiological modeling, and modeling is based on what we know today and what can be assumed from what's learned in other countries. And so the modelers use this information in their models, and they give both a maximum and a minimum number of cases or infections that could have occurred. What happens is many times the headline grabs the maximum and forgets to talk about the minimum, and then people get very concerned and very worried. I'm not saying that this model isn't accurate. I'm just saying that it's a model. And models are refined on a regular basis as more information comes in. So whether or not the population is infected at 50% is not clear at this point in time. But what's clear is that we really don't yet know the full destiny of this virus. Will this virus hang around in human populations or will it disappear? The hope is that it would disappear eventually. It's less and less likely that that will occur. But the question is, how and to what extent will it continue to transmit um, in the future? And its destiny, as with all new and emerging infections, is not yet
1: fully understood. Fantastic. Look, can I say to all three of you, I know you are immensely busy at the moment. I'm enormously grateful on behalf of our audience for all your brain power and your wisdom being brought to bear on those questions. To the audience, I would say thank you so much for your energy and your enthusiasm and all your wonderful questions. I'm sorry that we didn't get to all of them, but I feel like we've got a good range of things. I feel, at least for me, that I have come away reassured that there are probably not very big secret conspiracies going on that we don't know about. That the government does know what it's doing and that anyone who is fully condemning them and saying that we're 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 completely mad has not understood the variety of effective responses that are possible and indeed economic responses as well. And Linda's reassurance that again the Chancellor will be Iterating and trying to figure out how to stop people falling through the cracks. So I hope this has left you reassured with some good public health advice. And finally, I would say I think all four of us and Intelligence Squared would wish the uh, the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary and the Chief Medical Officer, uh, wish them all well. And of course, we are all thinking of the families who are grieving for people who, who have died in this epidemic all over the world. And of course, all the healthcare staff who are doing their best to prevent that happening. So um, thank you very, very much and stay in touch with us. And uh, yes, good luck and take care and look after yourselves. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank to you to everyone.
5: It's far here, from Intelligence Squared. Ah. I just wanted to reiterate our big thanks to the panellists. We've received so many chats from the audience, both on Twitter and in audience chats saying they've appreciated the conversation and insight given to us tonight. We had over 380 people in our audience this evening and over 100 questions given to us. It was absolutely amazing. We tried to get through them as as quick as possible. Sorry if we couldn't get to answer yours. But do please keep an eye on our Twitter page and we'll hope to put on a similar event like this again in the future. And finally, just a brief message to say that we've been contacted by a number of organizations, both large and small, who are looking to recreate what we've delivered here this evening. Many businesses are having to adapt very quickly to the coronavirus situation. And if you work for a company and might be interested in how Intelligence Squared could help you with your digital events, please email us at solutions at squared.com. To find out more, you can check out our website at squared.com. Just click on the solutions tab and you'll find out more information and how to get in touch with us. Thanks again to our panel. Have a lovely evening to our audience and we hope to see you again very soon.